everybody and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name's Amanda Woitis and I'm your host. I really hate playing favorites, but I'm just going to say it. I think this might be my favorite Life TK interview to date. I'm talking to Melissa Ledke, who is an award-winning journalist and has worked for places such as Sports Illustrated, Time and the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard. I first met Melissa when she kindly reached out to me after I was awarded a fellowship that she had previously been awarded. I received the fellowship for Life TK. She, much more ambitious than me, received it for a multimedia project called Touching Home in China, which was inspired by Melissa's desire to connect her daughter to her birthplace in China. The project, which is Part Multimedia Stories and Part Curriculum for Educators explores adoptees' search for identity and also what it's like for Chinese girls to grow up under the country's one-child policy. You can learn more about it at touchinghomeinchina.com. What Melissa and I are talking about today, though, is life in her 20s, and she has one of the most interesting stories. During the 1977 World Series between the New York Yankees and the L.A. Dodgers, Melissa was working for Sports Illustrated, covering the series, and as she'll tell you in the interview, was told by the baseball commissioner that because she was a woman, she wasn't allowed to go into the team's clubhouses for interviews, even though she had the proper credentials. So Melissa, along with Time Inc., the parent company of Sports Illustrated, filed a lawsuit against the Major League Baseball commissioner, and surprise, Melissa won the right to be in the locker rooms. So you can imagine my face when Melissa emailed me to introduce herself and told me this story. I was just like, whoa, I need to talk to her more about this. And I'm really grateful she agreed. Melissa is turning her story into a memoir. And when it's out, I'm going to buy all the copies. I just can't wait to read more about it. But I've got an abridged version for you today. Here's Melissa. So in May of 1973, I graduated from Wellesley College, and I had majored in history of art. But I'd also made the decision that I really wasn't interested in going either to work in that uh, realm or going to graduate school. So I was left trying to think about what else in life I might be able to do. I explored teaching for a while. I went to summer school at Smith College, and in fact, um, passed most of the requirements I would have needed to get a teaching certification, and I could have continued down that path. But midway through that summer, or actually toward the end of it, I had a somewhat serendipitous encounter with Frank Gifford, who was then a sportscaster with ABC Sports. And over dinner, we spent a lot of time talking about sports, and he paid me um, what I had thought at the time was a magnificent compliment to say it the end of the dinner that I really knew a lot about sports for a girl and in fact he was right I knew how to talk about sports and I knew um, you know I'd played sports 
So I felt very comfortable doing it. I could talk about sports. He followed up that that compliment to me um, <laughs> by inviting me to come down to New York or saying that when I did come down to New York, he'd be happy to introduce me to some people at ABC Sports. In a, what, two hours from not quite knowing what I was going to do next to deciding that that was what I was going to do with the rest of my life, which was to go down and be in sports. And so I'd never been to New York on my own. I'd, I'd kind of gone with my parents on visits when I was much younger, gone to the Bronx Zoo and stuff. But I set out and drove down to New York at an appointed time. Frank Gifford was true to his word, and he met me at the elevators at the uh, main network building at ABC, which was then on 6th Avenue. Avenue of the Americas, and I got up to the top or out the elevator on the floor for ABC Sports, and of course, ABC Sports at that time was like the king of sports. That was Wide World of Sports. It was Jim McKay. It was yeah. college football. It was everything. It was just, I mean, I watched it all the time, so going there was just magical for me. And he did. He introduced me to people. I remember when I got out of the elevator, I'd barely stepped out. We'd said hello, and Rune Arledge walked by, and there he was, you know, kind of the king of sports media at the time. Oh, awesome. So he introduced me around, and um, I ended up being um, drawn, perhaps most of all, to the only woman producer there at the time, a woman named Ellie Rieger. And Ellie had the job at that moment, which was now September, I guess, of 73, producing a special that ABC Sports was going to do called Women in Sports. It was a special hour dedicated to women in sports. And this had just come after Billie Jean King's beating Bobby Riggs. It had come a year after Title IX's passage. And it was really, I think, um, ABC Sports trying to acknowledge that there was change in the air. And so I just hung out. Um, Ellie invited me to, and I hung out there. And um, the um, biggest moment for me was when Billie Jean King came by. Oh, my gosh. And um, she came by because she was, of course, in the special. Yeah. And Donna DeVarona, who had been a uh, world champion, Olympic swimming champion in 1960 and was moving into broadcasting at the time, she was there. And so I just watched them and uh, watched them do some tapings, watched them look at some editing, you know, I was just entranced. And so that visit convinced me that I was going to move to New York and somehow I was going to find my way into ABC Sports. So that was my goal. And so I did, in fact, move to New York. I think it wasn't until like maybe December and I moved down. And the great thing was that one of the people I'd met when I was hanging out with Ellie, was her production assistant, a woman, a young woman my age named Barbara Roche. And Barbara was in the process of just moving apartments. And so she agreed. We just kind of liked each other right off the bat. And so she agreed that we'd look for an apartment together, which was just good fortune and great luck. And we moved in together. You know, at that time, you know, even on her small production assistant salary and you know, me coming riding into uh, New York with a little bit of money to put into housing, but, you know, needing to look for a job, we could live basically on First Avenue and 65th in a two-bedroom apartment, and that's what we did. 
Oh, my gosh. So, it's so different yeah, now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, it's so different now. So I started uh, looking for work. And it was clear by then that it was not likely that I was going to get a job with ABC Sports. I had was under the mistaken impression that if I went and took the typing test and learned a little stenography, which I did, that I could get my, quote, old foot in the door, you yeah. know, by being a secretary. But by then, of course, the women's movement had begun, and mm-hmm. a lot of media operations were suing media companies for putting women who had college degrees like mine into secretarial slots, et cetera. Newsweek had done a successful action, um, the women there, and that had morphed over into other networks and would go to Time Incorporated, eventually at the New York Times, looking at gender discrimination in terms of job slotting. So my best intentions of getting a secretarial job and working my way up were thwarted by the good news that women were fighting for gender equity. So that route wasn't open to me, but um, Harper's Bazaar had no compunction whatsoever about hiring (laughs) me as a secretary. So that became my day job. And then with Barbara as my roommate, I had access to the entire, you know, month schedule of where every shoot and every layover, voice layover session, where they would be and what time and which producer was doing them for the whole month ahead. So whenever I wasn't working, I would just park myself over at ABC and sit in the back of the studio where they were doing the voice layovers with the announcers, whether they were doing editing, I would go to shoots with them on events. And so I would, you know, just earn like 25 bucks a day doing gopher work. And sometimes I wouldn't earn anything. I'd just go and sit and watch and kind of become part of the furniture. They all knew me by then and Barbara had introduced me. Yeah. So, um, so that was kind of how I got my start, if you can call it that. But I got enough of a start. I have to say, one of the things I admire most about Melissa, and you'll notice this as the interview goes on, She doesn't fixate on roadblocks, and spoiler alert, there are definitely more obstacles coming her way. She could have said, well, Frank Gifford set up these meetings for me, of course I deserve a job as a secretary, but she doesn't waste time or energy on it. She just comes up with a new plan. It was uh, one of the producers at ABC who said, you know, I know a friend over at Sports Illustrated who's the one who hires their, you know, reporters and stuff. Would you like me to um, see if they are looking for someone? get you an interview? And I Mm -hmm. said, of course. And so I went over and did the interview and um, I got a rejection letter. But, you know, that was just one rejection letter. So I kept sending postcards to um, this person who was the hiring person, a guy named Merv, uh, Merv Hyman. And he would get my postcards every once in a while from various places that I was with ABC Sports. So it certainly gave the impression that I was out and about and working even if I was just earning $25 a day doing gopher work. So by September of that next year, so this would be 74, he had lost a reporter very quickly because she had gotten the editing job at World Tennis Magazine, needed to fit someone in. And I was in New York, and he called me, and I went in. And the second time around, I ended up getting hired. So that's kind of the long story of how I end up getting a job as a um, researcher reporter at Sports Illustrated with not having one newspaper clip or having ever worked on a school newspaper in my life. 
So it was just sort of that like persistence. Of, I think it was a lot of persistence yeah. and a lot of just uh, passion and, and just a belief that it was going to happen. I just always thought something good was going to happen. I never, never despaired during that time. I was just having fun. I was young and it was all new and very exciting. And um, every time I'd turn around, I'd meet someone new and, you know, there would always be this or that to do. And it was great. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So you end up at Sports Illustrated, and at that point, it was published by Time, Inc. It was one of Time, Inc.'s magazines, started in the mid-50s. Okay. And so what did you start out doing there? Were you doing, like, mostly research? Well, I was hired in the category called Researcher Reporter, which was really a wide-open category. I say that mainly a wide-open category at that time for, for men, because the few men that had been hired into that job by then, and remember, we'd had the Newsweek strike, legal action on gender discrimination. Time Inc. had followed soon after. So you began to see in that slot, researcher reporter, which really was a sort of fancy name for fact checker, mm-hmm. had really been the place where they had placed women. I mean, women were the fact checkers. And men were usually brought in and hired as writers. But after the gender discrimination cases, it was a lot more balanced in that way. There were, um, you know, there were a few men, probably still more women. And the older women who were there, who had been hired maybe a decade or eight years, six years before, it was pretty clear that they were going to remain pretty much fact checkers for their entire career there. But then there was sort of the younger generation of which I would be coming in in your early 20s who sort of came in with different expectations. And so being a researcher reporter, there were opportunities presented to people in those slots to do reporting, to do research, to work closely with writers. And you could kind of run with it as you wanted. And I would say that people of my era and then after me, Women who came in pretty much had made the decision they were going to run with it. Mm -hmm. And I think those past a certain age had come in at a time where there was just nothing that told them that they had the opportunity to really run with it. So much had changed, you know, because of the women's movement and because of what was happening. Now, you know, it was true during that time that men did move up and out of that category more quickly than women did. That just was the way it worked. But again, for a few of us of my entry time in the early 70s, that was a time when I think that those of us who came in then had the expectation then that we would do what the guys did. You know, so I always looked at it as as the first rung of a ladder. And I would look for every opportunity to kind of move up from that. You know, when you're talking about this, it very much feels like the sort of spirit that's in the country right now of it feels like there's a movement of change and especially. And that's with, like, how it women. was. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we came out. I mean, the generation ahead of us had been, you know, the the Bella Abzugs and uh, mm-hmm. Gloria Steinems and the rest, and they were already out and starting to move onto the streets and starting to do the first convention, um, you know, for women, all of that was going to be later in the 1970s, but that was in the air. So, you know, I kind of felt like I was really in the midst of, of this change. And 
the older women were basically saying to us, listen, you guys are the educated ones. You have the opportunity. You can have it all. That was the phrase then, you know, we were going to have it all. Of course, we weren't going to have it all. But um, that was the notion that we were going to be the first generation that could take such advantage of all that was around us. And being being well-educated just gave us a head start. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, So, yeah, maybe we could talk about the court case. And it was during the 77 World Series, right, that you were banned from reporting in the locker rooms. Right. Um, Yes. I was thinking about this today, and I was just, like, realizing the enormity of suing the Major League Baseball commissioner and, like, I'm kind of curious, like, did did you approach Time Inc. or Sports Illustrated and say, you know, this happened? Like, was it your idea? I'm it scared. It was not my idea. Okay. When you are out there and you are the only woman in a room, in a conference room, I just watched the movie The Post last night and watched Kay Graham and operating in rooms full of just, you know, men in dark suits and her – And I realized how much that was like my life back then whenever I'd go up to a baseball stadium. I mean, there was no one else, no one until 1979 who was assigned on a regular basis as a beat baseball reporter to travel and cover a baseball team. So usually whenever I was at a game, at a baseball game, and I was almost every night of the season, I would usually be the only one. And that was not a position where I had either the uh, confidence or the desire, frankly, to um, barge through what were barriers. I was much more the diplomat than I was the, uh, you know, hard charging through. I just had the law. I took the I took the long run approach, not the short term. And I felt like. I was sort of building it not just for myself, but for others who might follow. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew there would be someone else coming along, and indeed there were within a short time. I, I just wrote this today. I felt like I was sort of in the game, you know, children's game of Mother May I. You know, I was always sort of asking, you know, can I do this? Um, is this something that I can do next? Would this work out? So it wasn't, I mean, I think back and think, well, why didn't I? you know, just barge into the locker room and say, I have every right to be here as anyone else does. Well, A, it wasn't my style. It just wasn't who I am. But B, I'm not sure that it would have achieved very much. And I don't think that at the time I thought it was the way to go. And in fact, when we come into that 1977 season, I have now been on the baseball beat for Sports Illustrated for two full seasons, 76 and 77. And by that, I mean, again, I am not a writer for the magazine. I was sent to do some reporting occasionally with writers, or I even wrote a few baseball columns myself when I went out and reported them. But day by day, week by week, my job was to fact check the stories that would come in. Mm -hmm. But I figured since I was on the baseball beat and I had a pass that got me into any American or National League stadium, as a press person, that I was going to learn how to do this job. So when the time came that I was assigned to something like the World Series or the rest, that that wasn't going to be the first time I showed up at a stadium. Yeah. And I was going to feel comfortable knowing how to do it. 
But that took a long time. I mean, there was no one holding my hand, no one walking me up there from SI saying, well, you know, here, you know, this is what ha- really how it works when you're trying to interview someone around the batting cage. Or here's a way you might approach, you know, the, the manager in the dugout. Here's the way, you know. I mean, there was no one. I had to learn by watching mm-hmm. the men because players don't like to be interrupted at the batting cage necessarily. There are ones right. that are fine to talk around there. There are ones that aren't. But I had to learn that. I had to get to know what the rhythms are. You know, and for the guys, in most cases, they don't have to do their interviews while they're at the batting. We're at the batting cage and doing fielding and stuff. They don't have to do them then because guess what? They can walk in with the players and go to the locker room before the game starts, and they've got access to them. Right. But I didn't. So I had to figure it all out. And, um, you know, not many of the guys were willing to help. There were a few younger ones who I don't think I would have ever made it through without people like Henry Heck from the New York Post. And I think you also know that if you whine, if you complain, and you blame it on being a woman, you are not going to be in that job for a very long time because there are plenty of guys they can put in it. So implicitly, I knew that. It wasn't that anyone ever said, don't ever complain to me, come to me with all your problems. They didn't do that. But I also knew that that wasn't how it worked. You know, you didn't whine. You went out and you just did it the best you could. So anyway, long story short, I get to the middle of the 77th season. I've now been mainly at the Yankees because they've been the hot story in New York. And by the middle of the season, 77, I realized that my go slow approach was actually really paying off because Mickey Morabito, who was the PR guy, approaches me. I'd go to him on occasion and say, listen, Mickey, I'm having a really rough time. I'm asking my fellow reporters. A few of them go into the locker room and they ask if a player will come out and join me in the dugout for an interview. But, you know, not many of them come out. I'm getting frustrated. So, um, Mickey so, approached. Can I interrupt you really quick? Yeah, of course. So just so I get a sense of the process. So it's like you you would watch the game and like interview players where you could. No, no, then... no, no, no. This is before the game. This is, before this the is game. when the players okay. are going back. Okay. okay. I'm glad it was, I asked. First of all, absurd <laughs> that I wouldn't be in the locker room. No one's changing their clothes. All yes. the players are in their uniforms. This is between batting practice and the start of the game. They throw the press out maybe maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes before the game starts, okay, Okay, whatever it is. So that's a good chunk of time because they're the team that takes batting practice first. So you've got a long stretch of time where you can do some really nice interviews. It's rather a peaceful time. It's not the chaos after the game. It's the kind of place where if you're a reporter for Sports Illustrated, that's where you want to be. That's the time you want to use. Okay. But I didn't have it because so I couldn't go in. Like literally everyone else would just go into the locker room and you They would file past sit. me. They oh. would file past me in the dugout. And they'd all go in and all the reporters would just follow the players in. And if one of the friendly ones to me was around and I had a specific player I wanted to talk to, I might say, hey, you know, do you think you could ask so-and-so to come out and do an interview with me in the dugout? Mm-hmm. And then this is long before we have text or cell phones. So I don't know what's going on. I don't know if this person got diverted. I don't know if he's asked the player. I don't know if the player's coming out. So I would just have to sit and sit and sit and sit. And at a certain point, I'd figure, well, 
I guess they're not coming out. And that would be the end of it. I wouldn't get any work done that day, you know, because yeah. the person I wanted to talk to didn't come out. And so, you know, about midway through the season, Mickey approached me and said, hey, listen, how about if you join the other reporters in Billy Martin's office after the game? Would, would that work for you? Would you like that? Quick interruption here. Billy Martin was the manager of the Yankees. And I was just amazed and thrilled. And of course, I said, yes. He said, well, here's what I'll do. You meet me at the side door for the clubhouse. There, no guards are there. He said, I'll come through the clubhouse. I'll open that door for you and I'll bring you into Billy's office. Well, you know, frankly, that was a major achievement, Yeah. you know, and, and I really felt like go slow is the way to go. And, and what it did is it just put me in a completely different venue and there were the men reporters, you know, coming in and out and they saw me there and they got very used to me just yeah. being there, you know, so it was all sort of an acceptance, a gradual acceptance. And so um, then the last two days of the season, Billy, uh, Mickey comes to me and leaves me two clubhouse passes for the last two games. Those give me complete access to every part of the clubhouse, which includes the locker room. Oh, wow. And I was stunned. I hadn't really expected it, but, you know, I think that it was sort of Mickey's hunch that, you know, I would use it wisely that I wouldn't be a disruptive force with it. I'd sort of paid my dues. He'd watched me. Everyone had watched how I'd conducted myself. Yeah. So for those two games, I just went in before the games. And again, no one, you know, none of the other male reporters said anything. No one wrote a story as though it was any big occasion. You know, I went in, I did a couple of interviews, and I went out, and it was no big deal. Yeah. So at that point, what I figured is, that's, again, sort of part of my gradualist approach. And so I kind of had the sense that Mickey was sort of thinking, yeah, that's not a bad way. Let's work it up because it looked like they were going to be in the postseason. And, you know, it would be very likely that I'd have a press pass that would be like for anyone else, right? right. And that's, in fact, what happens. So I have – I now get a pass to cover the World Series, my first World Series I'm going to cover – I've paid two years of dues, and um, that Monday before the World Series is going to begin, I go to talk to the Dodgers. I go to talk to Tommy Lasorda. Another quick interruption here. Tommy Lasorda was the manager of the Dodgers. So I bumped into bump into him under the stadium as we're going out to the practice on Monday, and I just sort of said to him, Tommy, listen, what's the, what's the deal? I mean, could I have access to your office after the game? And he looked, you know, like his he'd just seen a ghost. And he sort of pulled away and he said, listen, talk to Tommy John. And Tommy John was walking right behind us, who was the player's rep. So all I was asking for was actually access to Tommy Lasorda's office in the same way that I'd had it to Billy Martin's office at that mm-hmm. point. Because I thought if I could do that, then I would be pitching in in a way that would really work for the magazine. Yeah. Right? Right. But then Tommy Lasorda didn't really respond to me. So I end up with Tommy John and Tommy John takes a look at my past and he says, there's no reason. I don't, I think you, you know, you have every right to be in the locker room, but let me run it by the guys and, and let me talk to you tomorrow and tell you how they feel. And so I get to the stadium the next day, Tuesday, the first game and Tommy John finds me and he says, listen, he said, we took a vote. 
the players know you have the pass, and a majority of them say they completely understand. If you need to come in, you need to come in. You know, he said it wasn't unanimous, so there might be a few players that might not be so friendly. But, you know, that's it. We're fine. And then he asked me one last favor. And he said, you know, would you mind telling Steve Brenner, who was their PR person, just about this decision? I haven't been able to relay it to him. And I could have been kind of a son of a bitch and said, no, that's not my job. Yeah. But I said, fine, I'll go find him. I didn't even know Steve, but I knew people could lead me to him. Yeah. So I went and told Steve, and Steve looked like Tommy Lasorda had. He kind of looked <laughs> like, oh, my God, you know, what could this mean? And that was the last I saw of anyone until I went and took my seat in the auxiliary press box. And it wasn't until the fifth inning when I was called up to the main press box that um, I'm very sad to say that it was Mickey Morabito who was given the task by the commissioner's office to be the one to tell me that I was banned from the locker rooms and I was prohibited from going into either manager's office. Now think about that. Mickey Morabito is the one who has given me the access during the season. He's seen how it had worked, et cetera. And he's the one who has to deliver the word to me, which I thought was really unfair. But anyway, so I, you know, after Mickey told me this, I said, you know, Mickey, I want to talk to the commissioner. If he's the one doing this, I want to talk to him. And he said, no go. Can't get the commissioner for you, but you can talk to his media relations person. So it went on to there to Bob Weir's. And the bottom line was that they basically said, because I'm a woman, I couldn't go in. So after the game, I basically went to the press conference that they have with a few of the players. And then I basically just went home and I didn't even call my editor, you know, which people would find very strange. Well, why wouldn't you call your editor? And for me, this was another day at the park. I've been dealing with this for two years on my own. I hadn't, you know, no one had been there, you know, kind of saying, well, why don't we call up there and be sure that you can get, you know, no. So I know it sounds strange, but I thought, well, why would I call? What am I going to say? What's different about this than all of the other, you know, kind of little bumps in the road that I've eventually found ways to get around? Right. Here's a little more context about what women could and couldn't do in 1977. I think it helps us understand a little bit better why Melissa's approach was the right one. Okay, women could be fired for being pregnant because the Pregnancy Discrimination Act didn't go into effect until 1978. 1977 was the first year a court recognized a case of sexual harassment in the workplace, but the definition of what sexual harassment is wouldn't be decided until the 80s. Women couldn't go to Harvard or Columbia because those learning institutions didn't become co-educational until 1979. And women, of course, couldn't fight in military combat. Thursday morning, I get to the office and my phone rings immediately and it's Pete Carey, who's the baseball editor. He says, get down here. I hear something's going on at the stadium. And I said, "Okay, I'll be down. So I went down and he said, Jane Gross called me, and Jane Gross had been at Sports Illustrated years before, had gone off to the newspapers, was covering the Professional Basketball Association, and had been the first woman who had gotten in permission to go into the uh, NBA locker room. She was okay. uh, covering the Knicks. And Jane evidently had heard, maybe through a reporter, who knows. I had not said to any, I hadn't even said it to my SI colleagues. You know, I just hadn't told anyone because... 
this was business as usual for me. Right. I mean, obviously it was a little unusual, but it seemed rather usual for me. But Jane evidently picked up something. And she called Peter, who was a good friend of hers, had been her editor. So Pete called me in to find out what was going on. I sat down and told him the story. And he said, go back to your office, if you would, and just write down everything you've told me. Write it as though you're writing a letter to Commissioner Kuhn, and we're going to continue to follow this now. And he walked into Roy Terrell's office, who was the managing editor. He told Roy about it. Roy said, you have my permission, do whatever you need to do. And so from that point on, the negotiations began with baseball. And and the bottom line is that baseball refuses to budge in any way that would be equal. Um, so it became apparent to the lawyers that it was likely that they were going to have to take this to court, and they seemed willing to do so. Time Inc. seemed willing to do so. And so you know, I got a call and asked if I would have my name as the plaintiff on a lawsuit that would be filed in the federal court in Manhattan. And um, without a moment's hesitation, I said yes. I don't think I ever thought about the fact that putting my name to this would um, lead to a year of interviews, speeches, lots of words said about me that weren't necessarily ones I would have liked to have said said about me, characterizations of me that weren't quite what I imagined I am. So I became obviously a focal point, a symbol uh, for sort of women's lib and for this issue and for, you know, my morality was was taken to task. I mean, who, what woman would ever go into a place where a man might be naked? You know, not to imagine that that man, that said man could put a towel around him. But anyway, you know, it led to all sorts of experiences that at the age of 26, I had never imagined that I would have. And so a year later, in September of 1978, after one hearing, and lots of um, affidavits and depositions and all sorts of things going back and forth among lawyers. But one actual two-hour hearing before our judge, she rendered a decision in September in favor of our case. So she basically ordered baseball to figure out a way to um, make it equal, equal access. What did it feel like when she ruled in your favor you know, I don't think it was real um, and uh, until I actually heard Walter Cronkite say it oh my on the air that night. And he ended his um, broadcast that night. I'd always grown up in my house. My family had always watched Walter Cronkite. And, you know, he always signed off with, that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so my little case was his last story of the evening. And there wasn't any video to it, but his voice saying it, and then him saying, that's the way it is, you know, September 25th, 1978. That's when it became real to me, I think. Walter? And that's the way it is. This is Walter Cronkite, CBS News. Good night. Anyway, I left. I left baseball the following. Um, I mean, left Sports Illustrated the following January. I was at CBS News. I okay. had decided to leave and do news and uh, taken a, a job there, um, but I didn't stay long because I didn't like TV and I also didn't like the fact that I looked around and saw that 
after five years of all I'd gone through at Sports Illustrated, my writing I'd done by then, I'd had major stories, etc., I noticed that, again, I was seeing the uh, breakdown of gender, and I was hired there as a researcher, and I very quickly met a lot of assistant producers who were guys about my age who seemed to have just about the same job preparation that I did, and um, so I remember I went to a vice president there and and noted the difference, and he said, well, we're not going to make any change, and so I, I left pretty quickly. And um... throughout Melissa's story, I was feeling so hopeful and happy. Finally, a fight women won. And at this part, I deflated a little bit, but it also feels very relatable. I definitely expected the trajectory of my career to keep going upward, building on skills I had learned at previous jobs. And that's just not the way it shakes out sometimes. You might plateau for a little while because the right opportunity has to be there. But I love Melissa's attitude, the same one we saw earlier in the episode where she just said, well, that was one rejection and kept on applying. And um, and I freelanced for quite a while. I was married, so I perhaps had the option of freelancing and did a lot more sports reporting, actually freelanced for a couple different magazines and stuff. And then I ended up back at Time, Inc. I went back to Time Magazine. And that's where I stayed for the next, um, I think, 13 years. So oh, okay. it was a long haul from there. Yeah. yeah. I came in with a passion for sports, and I think I left Sports Illustrated with a passion for journalism. And yeah. that was what really carried me through, um, you know, into my early 60s, because I ended um, my last real job there. Was it, it was at the Harvard, uh, Harvard University with the Neiman Foundation for Journalism, which is I was there for another 13 years editing their journal about journalism. So, um, you know, I really, <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I became... Uh, a real um, advocate for, um, for all things about journalism. Listen to who you are. I mean, that is the lesson from the 20s. It's a lesson in the 60s. And, you know, don't be driven by all of these external forces. Just go inside, figure out what it is that's your passion, what you want to do, and then you figure out the ways to do it. And so that's, that's kind of it. That's kind of where I am. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to Melissa. I think we all learned something about the slow approach and the long game. And this really inspired me to keep going. Again, you can find out more about Melissa's project Touching Home in China at touchinghomeinchina.com. Follow Melissa on Twitter. She's at Melissa Ledke. And when her book comes out, I'm going to basically demand that we all read it. Thanks for listening. See you next time.